Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Super Angel Podcast. Today, we're welcoming Amber, and I'm super excited to have you with us, Amber. But before shooting it to you, Anthony, Amber was a recommendation from a past guest. Am I right in saying that? It is indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Julia. So very, very excited to have you with us uh, today, Amber. I'm also a bit of a fan uh, cheering from the sidelines on Kaiko, but you'll tell us all about that. So thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say. This show is not investment advice and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Do you want to share a bit more about your story, like the whole backstory, and then what got you into angel investment uh, and angel investing in the first place? Absolutely. So backstory, I'm French. I studied mathematics and computer science, and I started working pretty immediately straight after college on the trading floor at HSBC. I was in equity derivatives structuring. I started my career in Paris and then moved to London, where I stayed for about a decade. Great experience there, but generally speaking, and that kind of builds the premises of how I think about my investment thesis as an angel today, I'm generally interested in technology, especially in three fields, health, food, and money. Um, And that has always been my kind of personal interest. And while I was working in banking in London, I've always kind of followed those interests and read some blogs and was, you know, reading some obscure newsletters and whatever. And that's actually how I got into crypto. So back in 2012, I was reading a a blog about uh, tech and money. And I stumbled upon the Bitcoin white paper. It turned out there was a meetup organized a week later in London. So I went to that. And that was kind of my first foray into crypto. What really kind of drew me into crypto was not necessarily the whole, you know, fully decentralized, slightly utopian, in my opinion, uh, crypto anarchist vision. But it was rather the, um, the fact that we had for the first time a technology that could enable online scarcity. As in, for the first time, I had something that I could send to someone else through internet and not have it anymore. That was kind of the thing that I thought was fascinating. And it was the, you know, solving of the double spent problem, which was uh, not something we were able to achieve before. Then Ethereum happened two years later. Uh, In the meantime, I did a couple of online degrees, MOOCs, uh, about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and blockchain. And then Ethereum happened. And I thought Ethereum was fascinating in a way that it could completely transform the way we execute contracts between parties. And I didn't see that again from a pure peer-to-peer way, like, okay, we're going to remove the banks and people are going to loan each other money without banks. What I saw was the operational efficiencies that could be yielded from using blockchain to disintermediate middle and back office, which is really contract execution. It's really about operations. So that was my thesis. And I tried to pitch that to the bank. It was way too early. And I ended up leaving the bank and acquiring Kaiko, 
from its original founder. So that's not really an angel investment because I actually acquired the business, but uh, it was more a management buyout than uh, an angel investment. But it was my first, you know, big investment decision was to put all my life savings into a startup that was pretty much bankrupt back then, which is Kaiko. And I've been running it the past eight years. And then today we're uh, post-Series B scale up with offices pretty much everywhere in the world. We're about 100 globally and we work with financial institutions and big corporates on uh, cryptocurrency market data solutions. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard like first angel investment being like an acquisition of a company that you're running. I think that's quite unique, actually. And tell me a bit more about, I mean, any of the memorable deals that you've done recently or any that you want to share, just to give a bit of a flavor to the listeners as well. Yeah. So going back to my kind of investment thesis, it's really kind of new technologies in food in health and money. So the money aspect is very much kind of uh, covered by my crypto investments and then later on Kaiko investments. Um, on the side of um, health, and it's actually hybrid health and food, actually that was my first, first angel investment. It was a like 2,000 euro investment, but by then I was probably 22 and that was a lot of money for me. Uh, I invested in a, a technology company that had developed a new patent to identify pathogens in uh, industrial food processing. And uh, I did that through a um, kind of angel investment platform that is French called Anexego. And that's how I got started was really I registered to the platform, I was looking at the deals they were pushing, there are two categories of deals, shorter term, kind of lower yield real estate stuff, or some relatively long-term, risky, more innovative stuff. And I was obviously looking at the latter. My first other small angel investment was this kind of health tech, food tech company. And then since Kaiko Series A, which was, I think, two and a half, three years ago, uh, where I managed to do a you know s small amount of secondary, I've kept that on the side for angel investing. I've been offered also by a VC fund to be a scout for them. So I've been trying to, when I'm convinced about a project, double down with like a personal ticket and a scout ticket, which uh, is generally cool for the founders because you know I can't lead around, uh, whereas the VC fund can, and, and I always try to you know show that I have skin in the game when I make and when I invest every somebody else's money, I try to also uh, match it with my own so that uh, I know that I follow the investment. So Amber, I want to I want to backtrack this conversation a bit because, you know, you, you shared a story there with Kaiko. And I think that is from where I'm standing, at least looking from the outside. And that is probably the most memorable deal in the sense that, that those are weird and unexpected and not common circumstances to see an investment being done. Right. And so I'd love for you to share whatever you are at liberty to share. But I'd love to know a bit about the story and also the decision making. Right. So you, you were talking about the fact that you were seeing something, you're getting excited about something you were at, you know, working in a, in, in a big company and you couldn't pursue that within that setting from there to buying Kaiko, a lot happened right <laughs> <laughs> so tell us tell us a bit about that story and how that came to be that's super cool yeah absolutely um so indeed so i started buying crypto and you know investing in in tokens just cryptocurrencies uh, back then in 2012 2013 uh, modestly, I was again. I was a you know young twenty something. I didn't have a fortune to invest, but I did what I could back then. And then I kind of not forgot about it, but I was not an actively you know managing that crypto um, position. Uh, but I was following a lot what was going on from a technology standpoint, and thereby what I said about Ethereum. And I thought what was fascinating with Ethereum was everything about how 
industries at scale could transform the way they execute contract between parties, not just finance. I mean, any kind of industry that heavily relies upon the execution of contracts. So I was watching this closely and following this. And, and my vision was to say, actually, in a world where we increasingly use the kind of automated code to execute contracts, two things become critical. One of them is the quality of the code that represents the financial contract. And the second one is the quality of the data that triggers the automatic execution of the contract. Because basically you can set a contract between, you know, uh, you and me, David, saying that, you know, I'm going to, you know, pay you something if something happens. Well, the information, if something happens, the contract needs to be fed that information. And so I thought, okay, there's two things that are going to be critical in the future, obviously code, and I think everybody knows that. And the second one is the data that is required to catalyze the execution of code. And if we manage to achieve those two things, then we can disintermediate so many expensive, centralized, kind of painful processes that are existing today in the way we run contracts. So that was the thesis. And I was a bit painful with, you know, telling that to whoever would listen. And that's how I got to meet Pascal Gauthier, who's the current CEO of Ledger. And he's the former CEO of Kaiko. So he founded Kaiko in 2014. I met him in London uh, back then. And at the time, he was looking to sell some of Kaiko's data to HSBC. And I was like, you know, honestly, great idea, but just way too early. Like every time I say Bitcoin in the office, it's like I'm going to get fired. <laughs> it's too early to try to think that HSBC is going to, or any bank, by the way, it's not just HSBC, like any bank is going to start buying data to trade crypto back in 2014. Like that was a non, like completely too early. Uh, but we got along really well. And in 2016, the funny thing is when I quit HSBC, uh, it was not initially for Kaiko or for crypto. I had um, another side interest, which I've been investing in as an angel since, in the area of food tech, especially in the area of ag tech. So I'm uh, a big believer in using insects to feed animals. So I'm not super keen on eating crickets myself. However, I really don't mind if the chicken that I eat have eaten crickets before. <laughs> and actually, now it's also something that's more mainstream. But back then, back in 2012, I had read an incredible report from the Food and Drug Administration, from the UNFAO, about that, about insect protein for food and feed, food being for humans and feed being for animals. And it's a absolutely, honestly, it, you can go as deep as with blockchain. It's super, super interesting, this thing. And my two things were insect protein for animal feed and blockchain and cryptocurrency. And people were joking at HSBC saying, you know, Emre, when she's going to go, it's either crypto or crickets. And um, I ended up getting enrolled in a summer program at the MIT on that, uh, on, on new technologies in agriculture. I did all my application about insects. I got enrolled, so I quit banking. I went to Boston, spent the summer there. And that was summer 2016, where crypto really started picking up. It was one of the first big bull cycles. It was the beginning of the ICOs, where everybody was issuing tokens. And so the activity and the level of excitement around crypto really surged at that point, and also price-wise. So at the end of the summer, I was like, I actually have some wealth now in crypto. I don't have that much in euro and starting an insect farm is very capex heavy. So I was like, okay, I'm going to pivot back into my crypto thesis and I'm going to start a crypto fund. I wanted to kind of 
cash out some of my crypto to invest in equity of crypto companies. And I reached out to Pascal telling him with the ICO boom and everything happening, people are taking much more of a professional slash quantitative approach to crypto. So data is going to become really valuable now as much as it was too early before because it was very retail. Now people are trying to be smart. People are trying to arbitrage price of crypto on different exchanges. People are trying to model the price of tokens, whatever. So I think data is going to be valuable now. So I spoke to Pascal, we reconnected and he was telling me, you know, I've been funding this business for two years. I believe in the vision. I think it's a great idea, but I'm going to join Ledger soon and I'm going to be off Kaiko. And actually everybody at Kaiko is leaving because they've been working pretty hard for the past two years and there was no addressable market. So we're kind of, you know, shutting down. And he was considering to sell Kaiko to another crypto company because Kaiko had essentially a very unique database containing every single transaction that had happened on all cryptocurrency markets since inception. So it was a pretty unique database, but that nobody wanted to pay for uh, back then. There was a company that had made an oral offer to Pascal and Pascal told me, if you can sell the business, I'll give you a cut of the price. And it was an interesting price. I said, okay. And so I committed to a three-month kind of consulting job to sell the business. And three months later, I told him, we cannot sell this thing. This is amazing. This is a gold mine. It's going to be worth billions one day. Data is super key to the future of blockchain. You know, I, I cannot buy the company at the price you've agreed to with the other company. But if you sell me a part of it uh, for less, you get the upside if I manage to turn the business around. And that's what we did. So he essentially sell, sold me uh, 51% of the business at a lower price, and he retained a portion of the company. He's still at the board today. He still owns a minority stake in the company today. And it's been win-win for both of us. But that's kind of the genesis. So sometimes when people are like, you know, share your story about starting a business, and I'm like, that's hardly repeatable because there's so many coincidences and kind of stars aligned for, for I think, both Pascal and I in, in very weird ways. I love this story. I mean, so many things to unpack. I do want to actually, well, first of all, I want to make a comment about, and it's also for other angels and maybe even other investors about how you can't put, let's say, the ideal path of uh, a new founder or founding a company into a mold, right? Like a lot of investors like to say, I'll invest only to the one person that found this problem within their company and made it their life's mission to solve it, right? Like at some point you were between you know, insect, like food, like sustainability and crypto with very specific motives, very specific passion areas, right? But it's just something to touch on. The other thing I will say, actually, which is quite interesting is, uh, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And maybe that's a nice segue in how you think about like the space. It's like every single investment I've missed in the past in the space of like crypto web three and DeFi was initially about market timing. And then I realized I'm completely thinking about it wrongly. And I actually started having an active thesis around investing in infrastructure components that expand the market if they do well. I don't know if this, I mean, this, like what you've built and what you're building really resonates and really fits that. Would love to hear a bit more if you had more thoughts around that and if this is definitely a lens uh, upon which you see the world and maybe we can expand a bit beyond 
on on how you think about also thesis in angel investing in the space. So yes, absolutely, I completely agree, and I've kind of stuck to that within my crypto investments. Like I've invested as an angel in another business called Kiln, and they do Node as a service. They're growing pretty fast, French company, but they're going growing pretty fast now. Um, I'm recently, it's not finalized yet, but I've just committed to another uh, company that is working around tokenization of real world assets, which is also very much part of my vision. Like my vision is not that crypto is going to stay crypto. Um, my vision is that we're going to use all of the, you know, DeFi for me is the most incredible sandbox that the world could dream of to prove that blockchain works. Because you can do lending and borrowing, decentralized exchanges. You can you can do so many things on chain now that you know DeFi is about maybe um, taking decentralization very very far. I believe in a world where we use all of the mechanisms of DeFi while still having some big regulated you know centralized entities that provide balance sheet that provides counterparty risk. That's the old banker me talking. But I don't see a world without banks. I don't see a world without regulated exchanges or regulated custodians. But I do see a world where having you know sending faxes and having people manually check stuff doesn't make any sense. And and I think in the same way that you know 40 years ago we moved to electronic trading and we stopped yelling at each other on a trading floor, I think that we're going to see a next wave of financial engineering that's going to be more blockchain-based for the execution part. I just recently invested in a business that, honestly, it's a long long shot, I think, but they're, first of all, brilliant founders, and second, uh, working on infrastructure uh, services around that long-term vision, which is if we manage to tokenize assets we need to pretty much reinvent all of the financial services that exist today. And notably, as you rightly mentioned, the market infrastructure providers. And, and Kaiko, I intend to build one of the biggest financial market data providers that understands how to read and write from into a blockchain, right? So it's not changing the nature of what we do. I mean, a data provider is a very old business. You know, you have Bloomberg, Refinitiv, you have Market. They just got, you know, all of them are $50 billion plus companies and they're pretty much leading the world of financial market data, but they don't speak blockchain. And I think what I want to do is look at the existing market infrastructure providers and, you know, invest in the same kind of businesses, but blockchain influence in some way or blockchain compatible. Uh, and I think that's clearly how I think about the industry when I invest. I'm not at all a metaverse, NFT, DGen. You know, I've never bought an NFT in my life. I do think that the instrument, the NFT as in a non-fungible token, is a very powerful one because it means anything that needs to be uniquely characterized. So if you think about application for blockchain in real estate or shipping, you know, a ship, a container, on a container ship is technically an NFT if you tokenize it because it's, it's unique. It's not the same as the container next door because obviously the inside of the container is different. So I don't have anything about NFTs as a concept. I do have something about the <laughs> misuse and the marketing that has been uh, made around, around that over the past couple of years. Um, so I'm really focusing on that kind of market infrastructure, uh, future of blockchain, uh, institutional applications, et cetera. You know, we ask this in most uh, podcasts, but I think here is a bit more unique given the how nascent the market is. But like what what does angel investment and angel investing give you professionally, right? Also personally. I mean, it, it, it sounds a lot like, you know, you have a thesis and you're passionate about the evolution of the market, you know, and a lot of the investments you can make shape parts of that. 
So I would love to hear, you know, how do you think about that? Honestly, I would say it's 90% personal. Obviously, it's tied to my professional interest, but it, none of my angel investments have served Kaiko. If, if I just to, to be, you know, to be very blunt, I'm not making those investments because I think it's going to help my business. I'm making those investments really because I'm genuinely convinced about, and especially with crypto, I have a strong, you know, view on where I think it's going to go. So those investments are very much tied to my own personal interests. And if Kaiko were to, you know, IPO tomorrow and I was asked to leave for a better CEO or if Kaiko failed or whatever would happen, I know that I would still be interested in investing time and resources into these businesses. So that's really not directly tied to Kaiko as a business, but it's obviously tied to my personal and professional interests. So I'm thoroughly enjoying this episode because I'm learning a, a bunch. So that's why I'm <laughs> sitting back and just raveling in some knowledge. <laughs> but now is the time for the investment thesis segment. And Amber, we have spoken about it, but I will ask you to just restate it as shortly and quickly as you can. Oh no, not about the thesis. What is your investment strategy in terms of, you know, um, what are you looking for, number of investments, countries you have invested in, et cetera. Just share whatever you can. So first of all, I'm trying to, you know, keep uh, my angel investments as a proportionally to my, I would say, capital, my investable capital. Uh, you know, here it's more about angel investment, but I try to do a bit of real estate. I do a bit of crypto and I do a bit of angel. And then I have a bit of cash that I place, especially since interest rates have risen, you know, I'm trying to be pretty balanced in my in my personal kind of uh, patrimonial approach. And so I would say the angel part is about 15, 20% of, of that. And out of that, I've been only putting relatively small tickets until now, around 10K, uh, which is small. I try to bring value as an angel and I try to be as available as I can. And, you know, I, I don't I honestly, I, I think I'm very, very hands off. But if I'm there, if people need me or if if founders need me, um, but for me, it's it's more about, you know, do I trust the founder, and obviously, does that fit my investment thesis? So that's more from the theoretical standpoint, and then from a practical standpoint, investment thesis is really same thing: technology, food, health, money. Those are my three investment thesis, and I try to not uh, deviate too much. Yeah. I want to ask a question that we oftentimes don't ask, but I think given where you are in the angel investment journey, it might actually be something interesting. How did you come up with that 15%, 20% mark, right? Because it, it, it it's not that I disagree with it. That's not the point. Yeah. It's just, where does it come from, right? <laughs> How did you come up with it? I, I guess it's just, a, it, you know, it's, let's say you have a hundred. I just try to keep a balanced mix between some say, I have three kids, so a bit of savings. <laughs> A bit of yeah. real estate because it yields. Basically, I'm trying to not have stuff that's going to bring potential returns in 10 years, but have a part of my wealth that yields. And that is the basically a part of, for me, you know, if you have a capital, you have to have a piece of that where it's about uh, capital gains. And that's clearly, for me, uh, the angel part and a little bit the real estate part, but the real estate can also yield. And then a piece that yields and that is liquid, right? So then the that's kind of the cash component or the even crypto component that you can stake and you can get some yield out of that. Uh, so it's really about keeping a balance. And I, I'm passionate about real estate. I love exploring and, and looking at stuff. So I just want to make sure I reserve some place for that too. 
I think it's good to be prudent with that stuff for sure. Um, going back to the angel investing side, when you think about founders, right? Investing in founders, what would you say would be like one element you look out for, right? When you meet those founders, what's the one trait or one of the things that like you really kind of look out for when it comes to founders you, you'd like to back? Uh, I think, uh, you know, values and, uh, and by values, I would say intelligence, curiosity, open-mindedness and hard work, honestly. Uh, I, you know, I think you can learn everything as long as you're smart. I think being an entrepreneur takes much more than just, you know, brain or network or working hard. I think it takes a lot of grit and a lot of adaptability and agility and, and an ability to create relationships with pretty much whoever, you know, you should be as a founder, you should be comfortable talking to a regulator, comfortable talking on a podcast and and stay human and a normal person working with your colleagues and, and the ability to hire. That's one of the things I love about uh, Kiln. I think Leslo, the founder, is, is, is a great people person. He hires well. I think that's a very important skill for a founder. So for me, it's really about personality and values when it comes to the founder, more than track record, background, you know, serial entrepreneur kind of uh, aspects. How do you think about borders in the sense of internationalization? How international of a net are you willing to kind of cast, let's put it like that, in terms of your investments, given that, you know, you are a small ticket investor, you're not institutionalized as, as an angel investor, you know, you have a full-time job. So there is a limit to your, to your ability here to both source, but also DD. I've never sourced. I, it's purely when people tell me about something or, you know, it's purely a word of mouth deals that I've made. It's true that my network, I think I've had more UK, French and US deals, but I would be completely open to anything. I, I really don't have a geographical boundary, but because I don't source or actively look for anything, it, it's more my network bringing me stuff. And so I guess it's collaboration, right? A lot of that word of mouth. Do you want to elaborate a bit more on that? I mean, are you systematic? Is it opportunistic? Is it other VCs, other peers in the market? How do you think about people you collaborate with? 100% opportunistic and I could be at a dinner and somebody tells me about someone who's, you know, I recently I invested in somebody who's building something to, uh, well, that's a bit outside of my scope, but to work on uh, regrowing coral reefs with some super high tech stuff, but that can be installed on existing power plants and water, you know, there's those big, well, anyway, industrial things near the sea. There, it's something about a chemical reaction that you can change to um, make um, the water less acid, basically. And and that was completely random. I was at a dinner and I heard about it and I thought it was super cool. So it, it's I really don't have a very professional approach to angel investing yet, either because, well, both because I don't have time and also because I'm not actively looking for that yet. I hope that, you know, in five or 10 years, I'll have built enough savings that I can do that more and probably work a bit less. But today, Kaiko is still 200% of my time. <laughs> I will say, and maybe that sounds a bit controversial for the listeners as well, but like one of the really interesting parts of being an angel is that you can be as raw as you want. You can be as opportunistic as you want. You can be as bold as you want, right? Like many times, like more professional or more thought uh, through investors do say, you know, I need to have a systematic strategy, be very thoughtful about everything. And sometimes, you know, you miss stuff because by design, you know, th th that's the nature of early venture, right? So I love parts of that, to be honest. Out here learning more about them angels, are you? If you had to share three core learnings 
from your time from angel investing, what would those be? I would say curiosity, I think. You know, be curious and explore and, and be open to things. I think the you know, the again, my, my thing is I'm not doing this professionally, right? So it's it's really opportunistic and the opportunities come when you listen and when you're curious. So I would say to listen and be open and be curious are probably the three things that brings deal flow. And then it's for me it's really about the the people and the values and, and the old adage of when in doubt, don't. It's because of, this is very opportunistic. Like most of the time, I don't go into the details of the financials or anything. I, I'm just like, I believe in it. I believe in the founder or not. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I just do it if really I, I trust the, the people. For me, a lot of things are about trust. Also, because by the way, a very good founder can, you know, start a business, realize that it's not going to work and just return funds. I mean, it just happened to my husband a couple of weeks ago. He invested in the business, 10K tickets, and he just got back 8.5 because the founders realized this is not going to work out. And I'm like, this is what healthy founders do, right? It's not. So so for me, you know, being held again, 10K is nothing like it's not the end of the world. But what I mean is in the attitude and the way you, you think about it, if you trust the people to do the right thing, to be agile and to be smart, either they pivot into something else or there's this this notion of uh, agility and and being a, a good human being i think is the most important let me ask you one thing which is not necessarily connected to any specific learning that you share, shared but it's kind of transversal to it which is a lot of what you're saying comes down to like alignment with the way that individual that person kind of thinks about life and work and 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 startups and 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 etc are you one to kind of just follow your gut feeling and just like quick quick decision making or are you actually on top of that just making sure you're doing some kind of whether that's reference checks or just are you making sure that you collaborate a bit with the person before you're ever doing an investment or, or is it like pure gut feeling it's a gut feeling and reference checks yeah so i i have to say i've never challenged a founder about his business plan or i've never looked at his marketing strategy or whatever for me it's the gut feeling i have when i talk to people and then I always do reference checks. I always make sure that I know some people in common, that I get some good feedback. It doesn't have to be about the fact that he's a killer entrepreneur in terms of feedback. But again, it's to you know just make sure that the person has a good reputation. Are you kind of knowingly developing your own gut feeling? And that that might go beyond angel investing, by the way, because because some people work on it. Um, you know, I I find that my gut feeling is oftentimes right but I have a really hard time in expressing or, or at least kind of documenting in some way or form structured manner. Why is why? my gut feeling saying X, Y, or Z? Yeah. And some people that I know actually have some, some processes and methods in place to, in place to try to kind of mature that gut feeling and, and kind of understand themselves in the way they, they think and, and kind of get those feelings. Uh, are you doing anything in that front? Not really. And I'm very bad at explaining my gut feeling. I trust my guts and I go with it. Uh, I think it would be different if I was doing that professionally, right? If, if like tomorrow I exited Kaiko with some uh, amount of wealth and I decided to really just focus on Angel, I'm sure I would try to have a more systematic approach. But at, yeah. as of today, I'm, I'm very early in the game. And so it's, it's very uh, gutsy. I do want to jump into that, and I, I agree actually with all of that. And it's quite difficult to like explain gut feel as well. I th I do think that you know coming from like a, a like VC turned angel kind of perspective, um, and you know applying that kind of gut feel into the investment world, the way I go about it is I have frameworks of system sy in systems thinking, 
And so you have a process, but gut feel is gut feel, right? It's like usually, let's say in, in the context of investment decision making, right? I use gut feel on, is this a one in a thousand company? Will I put the work, right? Then I don't trigger based on that. I do my work. So I go to facts. And then by the end of it with systems thinking, like it is an emotional decision. So this is a way of like deciphering things into modules and having a process and a framework. It still is more art than science, but it is a way in the context of investment decision-making to start adding some frameworks to it. But I do recognize that in the end of the day, it is an emotional decision uh, and it's a gut decision, right? It is not perfect. And even if you ask me now, like whether... Uh, I can, you know, analyze my gut feel. It's still quite tricky, but at least you have a process that's systematic and you hope for in a portfolio approach with, you know, ensuring you have really good access and following that process and frameworks that you'll do well in the long term, right? I mean, I, th I think that's how, how I go about it, I guess. I feel like I lack the vocabulary in, term of, of, in terms of human cognition to express myself in the topic because it's really different when you have like a negative gut feeling, right? A reason to not do something. And then you see the thing pan out and you qu you quickly kind of rationalize it into, yeah, my gut feeling was right from a gut feeling that something might be that one in a thousand, which oftentimes takes a much longer time to pan out, right? And so how do you balance that as an individual? It's very much a human kind of individual development topic, but I find it super, super interesting. Totally. Amber, we always end our episodes with a quick fire round where we ask you quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started angel investing? Um, something that probably is more obvious than it sounds. I think the best product is not the one that wins. It's the best marketing. And I don't know how it is in the US, but in France, if you're good at math, you're a genius and kind of... <laughs> I, and I'm sorry to say that, but sometimes it's like if you go into the, you know, marketing schools, like, you know, more uh, liter literature stuff, it's considered the lower path. And honestly, I'm like now that I'm in business and as I invest, I think what makes a killer company is the ability to market properly. And, and so marketing is such an important thing in the professional world. And it's such undervalued in the educational world like it's not seen as the great path and actually honestly that is what differentiates two businesses so i'm being very careful to how people are able to think about marketing the second question might be a tough one for you so feel free to share reflections rather than tips but the question is what would be your top tips to angels wanting to do more international investments My instinct would be to speak to somebody who knows the local taxes and just make sure from a pure setup perspective, you know, I'll say something also maybe sounds dumb, always anticipates, anticipate the case of if the investments go really, really well, because, you know, you just make sure that you have the right structure in place so that if this thing is worth a lot, you don't get completely screwed over by the <laughs> fact that you didn't because you were like, oh, I'm putting 10, 50, whatever, 100K, you know, it's maybe not that much today, but if it works and you end up having to pay 50% in the country you invested in and then 30% where you live and you end up with 20, you better optimize the, so I would say check the, the legal structure and the tax structure before investing abroad. And I have to say, I've seen many, many doing that wrong. So I definitely agree with that one. Third and final question, Amra, what advice would you give your own 10 year younger self if you only had 30 seconds to do so? 
it's something I actually try to apply, but I'll still say it again, is you don't make money without spending money. And so I think it's important to take risks, measured risks, but it's important to have a zero coupon phase, which is, you know, what you need to live and to operate. And then whatever extra invest into the, uh, into the kind of out of the money call option, the derivative me talking. <laughs> Love that. It comes back, right? Uh, full circle. Honestly, I'm, you know, starting as a fanboy, coming out of this uh, conversation even more so. What an amazing story. What an amazing background. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks. And uh, it was super, super great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining, Ambre. Thanks a lot, both of you, for inviting me. It was a great conversation. Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say. Incest by an angel, girl. Bro. Bro. Bro.